Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 2, Chapter 2, Section 7. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, and great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 7. In this way, then, man is said to have free will, not because he has a free choice of good and evil, but because he acts voluntarily and not by compulsion. This is perfectly true, but why should so small a matter have been dignified with so proud a title? An admirable freedom that man is not forced to be the servant of sin, while he is, however, Greek word, epsilon, theta, epsilon, lambda, omicron, delta, omicron, epsilon, lambda, omicron, zeta, ethelodelos, a voluntary slave, his will being bound by the fetters of sin. I abominate mere verbal disputes by which the church is harassed to no purpose. I think we ought religiously to eschew terms which imply some absurdity, especially in subjects where error is of pernicious consequence. How few are there who, when they hear free will attributed to man, do not immediately imagine that he is the master of his mind and will in such a sense that he can of himself incline himself either to good or evil. It may be said that such dangers are removed by carefully expounding the meaning to the people. But such is the proneness of the human mind to go astray, that it will more quickly draw error from one little word than truth from a lengthened discourse. Of this the very term in question furnishes too strong a proof, for the explanation given by ancient Christian writers, having been lost sight of almost all who have come after them by attending only to the etymology of the term, have been led to indulge a fatal confidence. Section 8. As to the fathers, if their authority weighs with us, they have the term constantly in their mouths, but they at the same time declare what extent of meaning they attach to it. In particular, Augustine hesitates not to call the will a slave. In another passage, he is offended with those who deny free will, but his chief reason for this is explained when he says, quote, Only lest anyone should presume so to deny freedom of will from a desire to excuse sin, unquote. It is certain, he elsewhere admits, that without the spirit the will of man is not free, inasmuch as it is subject to lusts which chain and master it. And again, that nature began to want liberty the moment the will was vanquished by the revolt into which it fell. Again, that man, by making a bad use of free will, lost both himself and his will. Again, that free will, having been made a captive, can do nothing in the way of righteousness. Again, that no will is free which has not been made so by divine grace. 
Again, that the righteousness of God is not fulfilled when the law orders, and man acts, as it were, by his own strength, but when the Spirit assists, and the will, not the free will of man, but the will freed by God, obeys. He briefly states the ground of all these observations when he says that man at his creation received a great degree of free will, but lost it by sinning. In another place, after showing that free will is established by grace, he strongly inveighs against those who irrigate anything to themselves without grace. His words are, quote, How much soever miserable men presume to plume themselves on free will before they are made free, or on their strength after they are made free, they do not consider that, in the very expression, free will, liberty is implied. Inner quote, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Close, inner quote, 2 Corinthians 3.17. If, therefore, they are the servants of sin, why do they boast of free will? He who has been vanquished is the servant of him who vanquished him. But if men have been made free, why do they boast of it as of their own work? Are they so free that they are unwilling to be the servants of him who has said, inner quote, Without me ye can do nothing? Close, inner quote. Close quote. John 15.5 In another passage, he even seems to ridicule the word when he says, quote, That the will is indeed free, but not freed, free of righteousness, but enslaved to sin. Unquote. The same idea he elsewhere repeats and explains when he says, quote, That man is not free from righteousness save by the choice of his will, and is not made free from sin save by the grace of the Savior. Unquote declaring that the freedom of man is nothing else than emancipation or manumission from the righteousness, he seems to jest at the emptiness of the name. If anyone then chooses to make use of this term without attaching any bad meaning to it, he shall not be troubled by me on that account. But, as it cannot be retained without very great danger, I think the abolition of it would be of great advantage to the church. I am unwilling to use it myself and others, if they will take my advice, will do well to abstain from it. Section 9. It may perhaps seem that I have greatly prejudiced my own view by confessing that all the ecclesiastical writers, with the exception of Augustine, have spoken so ambiguously or inconsistently on this subject that no certainty is attainable from their writings. Some will interpret this to mean that I wish to deprive them of their right of suffrage, because they are opposed to me. Truly, however, I have had no other end in view than to consult, simply and in good faith, for the advantage of pious minds, which, if they trust to those writers for their opinion, will always fluctuate in uncertainty. At one time they teach that man, having been deprived of the power of free will, must flee to grace alone. At another they equip, or seem to equip, him in armor of his own. It is not difficult, however, to show that notwithstanding of the ambiguous manner in which those writers express themselves, they hold human virtue in little or no account, and ascribe the whole merit of all that is good to the Holy Spirit. To make this more manifest, I may here quote some passages from them. What then is meant by Cyprian in the passage so often lauded by Augustine? Quote, Let us glory in nothing, because nothing is ours. Unquote unless it be that man, being utterly destitute, considered in himself, should entirely depend on God. What is meant by Augustine and Eucharius, when they expound that Christ is the tree of life, and that whoso puts forth his hand to it shall live, that the choice of the will is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that he who, forsaking the grace of God, tastes of it shall die? 
Watt is meant by Chrysostom when he says, quote, that every man is not only naturally a sinner, but is holy sin, unquote. If there is nothing good in us, if man from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot is holy sin, if it is not even lawful to try how far the power of the will extends, how can it be lawful to share the merit of a good work between God and man? I might quote many passages to the same effect from other writers, but lest any cavaler should say that I select those only which serve my purpose, and cunningly pass by those which are against me, I desist. This much, however, I dare affirm that though they sometimes go too far in extolling free will, the main object which they had in view was to teach man entirely to renounce all self-confidence and place his strength in God alone. I now proceed to a simple exposition of the truth in regard to the nature of man. Section 10 Here, however, I must again repeat what I promised at the outset of this chapter, that he who is most deeply abased and alarmed by the consciousness of his disgrace, nakedness, want, and misery, has made the greatest progress in the knowledge of himself. Man is in no danger of taking too much from himself, provided he learns that whatever he wants is to be recovered in God, but he cannot arrogate to himself one particle beyond his due without losing himself in vain confidence, and by transferring divine honor to himself, becoming guilty of the greatest impiety. And, assuredly, whenever our minds are seized with a longing to possess a somewhat of our own, which may reside in us rather than in God, we may rest assured that the thought is suggested by no other counselor than he who enticed our first parents to aspire to be like gods, knowing good and evil. It is sweet, indeed, to have so much virtue of our own as to be able to rest in ourselves. But let the many solemn passages by which our pride is sternly humbled deter us from indulging this vain confidence. Quote, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. Unquote. Jeremiah 17.5 He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in those that fear him, and those that hope in his mercy. Unquote. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. Quote, he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Unquote. Isaiah 40, 29-31. The scope of all these passages is that we must not entertain any opinion whatever of our own strength if we would enjoy the favor of God who, quote, resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble, unquote, James 4, 6. Then let us call to mind such promises as these, quote, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground, unquote, Isaiah 44, 3. Quote, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, unquote. Isaiah 55, 1. These passages declare that none are admitted to enjoy the blessings of God, save those who are pining under a sense of their own poverty. Nor ought such passages as the following to be omitted, quote, The sun shall no more be thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Unquote. Isaiah 60:19. The Lord certainly does not deprive his servants of the light of the sun or moon, but as he would alone appear glorious in them, he dissuades them from confidence even in those objects which they deem most excellent.
Section 11. I have always been exceedingly delighted with the words of Chrysostom, quote, The foundation of our philosophy is humility, unquote, and still more with those of Augustine, quote, as the orator, when asked, What is the first precept in eloquence? Answered, Delivery. What is the second? Delivery. What is the third? Delivery. So, if you ask me in regard to the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. Unquote. By humility, he means not when a man, with a consciousness of some virtue, refrains from pride, but when he truly feels that he has no refuge but in humility. This is clear from another passage. Quote, Let no man, unquote, says he, quote, flatter himself, of himself he is a devil. His happiness he owes entirely to God. What have you of your own but sin? Take your sin which is your own, for righteousness is of God. Unquote. Again, quote, why presume so much on the capability of nature? It is wounded, maimed, vexed, lost. The thing wanted is genuine confession, not false defense. Unquote. Quote, when anyone knows that he is nothing in himself and has no help from himself, the weapons within himself are broken and the war is ended. Unquote. All the weapons of impiety must be bruised and broken and burnt in the fire. You must remain unarmed, having no help in yourself. The more infirm you are, the more the Lord will sustain you. So, in expounding the 70th Psalm, he forbids us to remember our own righteousness, in order that we may recognize the righteousness of God, and shows that God bestows his grace upon us, that we may know that we are nothing, that we stand only by the mercy of God, seeing that in ourselves we are altogether wicked. Let us not contend with God for our right, as if anything attributed to him were lost to our salvation. As our insignificance is his exaltation, so the confession of our insignificance has its remedy provided in his mercy. I do not ask, however, that man should voluntarily yield without being convinced, or that, if he has any powers, he should shut his eyes to them, that he may thus be subdued to true humility. But that getting quit of the disease of self-love and ambition, Greek words, phi, iota, lambda, alpha, epsilon, tau, iota, alpha, psi, alpha, iota, phi, iota, lambda, omicron, nu, epsilon, iota, xi, iota, alpha, palatia, zai, pilonexia, under the blinding influences of which he thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think, he may see himself as he really is by looking into the faithful mirror of Scripture. Section 12. I feel pleased with the well-known saying which has been borrowed from the writings of Augustine, that man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin, and his supernatural gifts withdrawn, meaning by supernatural gifts the light of faith and righteousness, which would have been sufficient for the attainment of heavenly life and everlasting felicity. Man, when he withdrew his allegiance to God, was deprived of the spiritual gifts by which he had been raised to the hope of eternal salvation. Hence it follows that he is now an exile from the kingdom of God, so that all things which pertain to the blessed life of the soul are extinguished in him until he recover them by the grace of regeneration. Among these are faith, love to God, charity towards our neighbor, the study of righteousness and holiness. All these, when restored to us by Christ, are to be regarded as adventitious and above nature. If so, we infer that they were previously abolished. 
On the other hand, soundness of mind and integrity of heart were, at the same time, withdrawn, and it is this which constitutes the corruption of natural gifts. For although there is still some residue of intelligence and judgment, as well as will, we cannot call a mind as sound and entire, which is both weak and immersed in darkness. As to the will, its depravity is but too well known. Therefore, since reason, by which man discerns between good and evil, and by which he understands and judges, is a natural gift, it could not be entirely destroyed. But being partly weakened and partly corrupted, a shapeless ruin is all that remains. In this sense it is said, John 1, 5, that, quote, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, unquote these words clearly expressing both points of ease, that in the perverted and degenerate nature of man there are still some sparks which show that he is a rational animal, and differs from the brutes, inasmuch as he is endued with intelligence, and yet that this light is so smothered by clouds of darkness that it cannot shine forth any good effect. In like manner, the will, because inseparable from the nature of man, did not perish, but was so enslaved by depraved lusts as to be incapable of one righteous desire. The definition now given is complete, but there are several points which require to be explained. Therefore, proceeding agreeably to that primary distinction, Book 1, Chapter 15, Section 7 and 8, by which we divided the soul into intellect and will, we will now inquire into the power of the intellect, to charge the intellect with perpetual blindness, so as to leave it no intelligence of any description whatever, is repugnant not only to the word of God, but to common experience. We see that there has been implanted in the human mind a certain desire of investigating truth, to which it never would aspire unless some relish for truth antecedently existed. There is, therefore, now in the human mind, discernment to this extent, that it is naturally influenced by the love of truth, the neglect of which in the lower animals is a proof of their gross and irrational nature. Still, it is true that this love of truth fails before it reaches the goal, forthwith falling away into vanity. As the human mind is unable from dullness to pursue the right path of investigation, and, after various wanderings, stumbling every now and then like one groping in darkness, at length gets completely bewildered, so its whole procedure proves how unfit it is to search the truth and find it. Then it labors under another grievous defect, and that it frequently fails to discern what the knowledge is which it should study to acquire. Hence, under the influence of a vain curiosity, it torments itself with superfluous and useless discussions, either not averting at all to the things necessary to be known, or casting only a cursory and contemptuous glance at them. At all events, it scarcely ever studies them in sober earnest. Profane writers are constantly complaining of this perverse procedure, and yet almost all of them are found pursuing it. Hence Solomon, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, after enumerating all the studies in which men think they attain the highest wisdom, pronounces them vain and frivolous. Section 13. Still, however, man's efforts are not always so utterly fruitless as not to lead to some result, especially when his attention is directed to inferior objects. Nay, even with regard to superior objects, though he is more careless in investigating them, he makes some little progress. Here, however, his ability is more limited, and he is never made more sensible of his weakness than when he attempts to soar above the sphere of the present life. 
It may therefore be proper, in order to make it more manifest, how far our ability extends in regard to these two classes of objects, to draw a distinction between them. The distinction is that we have one kind of intelligence of earthly things, and another of heavenly things. By earthly things I mean those which relate not to God and his kingdom, to true righteousness and future blessedness, but have some connection with the present life, and are in a manner confined within its boundaries. By heavenly things I mean the pure knowledge of God, the method of true righteousness, and the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom. To the former belong matters of policy and economy, all mechanical arts and liberal studies. To the latter, as to which, see the eighteenth and following sections, belong the knowledge of God and of his will, and the means of framing the life in accordance with them. As to the former, the view to be taken is this, since man is by nature a social animal, he is disposed from natural instinct to cherish and preserve society, and accordingly we see that the minds of all men have impressions of civil order and honesty. Hence it is that every individual understands how human societies must be regulated by laws, and also is able to comprehend the principles of those laws. Hence the universal agreement in regard to such subjects, both among nations and individuals, the seeds of them being implanted in the breasts of all without a teacher or lawgiver. The truth of this fact is not affected by the wars and dissensions which immediately arise, while some, such as thieves and robbers, would invert the rules of justice, loosen the bonds of law, and give free scope to their lust, and while others, a vice of most frequent occurrence, deem that to be unjust which is elsewhere regarded as just, and, on the contrary, hold that to be praiseworthy which is elsewhere forbidden. For such persons do not hate the laws from not knowing that they are good and sacred, but, inflamed with headlong passion, quarrel with what is clearly reasonable, and licentiously hate what their mind and understanding approve. Quarrels of this latter kind do not destroy the primary idea of justice. For while men dispute with each other as to particular enactments, their ideas of equity agree in substance. This, no doubt, proves the weakness of the human mind, which even when it seems on the right path halts and hesitates. Still, however, it is true that some principle of civil order is impressed on all, and this is ample proof that, in regard to the constitution of the present life, no man is devoid of the light of reason. Section 14 Next come manual and liberal arts and learning which, as all have some degree of aptitude, the full force of human acuteness is displayed. But though all are not equally able to learn all the arts, we have sufficient evidence of a common capacity in the fact that there is scarcely an individual who does not display intelligence in some particular art. And this capacity extends not merely to the learning of the art, but to the devising of something new, or the improving of what had been previously learned. This led Plato to adopt the erroneous idea that such knowledge was nothing but recollection. So cogently does it oblige us to acknowledge that its principle is naturally implanted in the human mind. But while these proofs openly attest the fact of an universal reason and intelligence naturally implanted, this universality is of a kind which should lead every individual for himself to recognize it as a special gift of God. To this gratitude we have a sufficient call from the Creator Himself, when in the case of idiots He shows what the endowments of the soul would be were it not pervaded with His light. Though natural to all, it is so in such a sense that it ought to be regarded as a gratuitous gift of His beneficence to each. 
Moreover, the invention, the methodical arrangement, and the more thorough and superior knowledge of the arts, being confined to a few individuals, cannot be regarded as a solid proof of common shrewdness. Still, however, as they are bestowed indiscriminately on the good and the bad, they are justly classed among natural endowments. Section 15. Therefore, in reading profane authors, the admirable light of truth displayed in them should remind us that the human mind, however much fallen and perverted from its original integrity, is still adorned and invested with admirable gifts from its Creator. If we reflect that the Spirit of God is the only fountain of truth, we will be careful, as we would avoid offering insult to Him, not to reject or contemn truth wherever it appears. In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. How, then, can we deny that truth must have beamed on those ancient lawgivers who arranged civil order and discipline with so much equity? Shall we say that the philosophers, in their exquisite researches and skillful description of nature, were blind? Shall we deny the possession of intellect to those who drew up rules for discourse and taught us to speak in accordance with reason? Shall we say that those who, by the cultivation of the medical art, expended their industry in our behalf were only raving? What shall we say of the mathematical sciences? Shall we deem them to be the dreams of madmen? Nay, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without the highest admiration, an admiration which their excellence will not allow us to withhold. But shall we deem anything to be noble and praiseworthy without tracing it to the hand of God? Far from us be such ingratitude, an ingratitude not chargeable even on heathen poets, who acknowledged with philosophy and laws and all useful arts were the inventions of the gods. Therefore, since it is manifest that men whom the scriptures term natural are so acute and clear-sighted in the investigation of inferior things, their example should teach us how many gifts the Lord has left in possession of human nature, notwithstanding of its having been despoiled of the true good. Section 16 Moreover, let us not forget that there are most excellent blessings which the Divine Spirit dispenses to whom He will for the common benefit of mankind. For if the skill and knowledge required for the construction of the tabernacle behoved to be imparted to Bezalel and Aholiab by the Spirit of God, Exodus 31.2 and 35.30, it is not strange that the knowledge of those things which are of the highest excellence in human life is said to be communicated to us by the Spirit. Nor is there any ground for asking what concourse the Spirit can have with the ungodly, who are altogether alienated from God. For what is said as to the Spirit dwelling in believers only, is to be understood of the Spirit of holiness by which we are consecrated to God as temples. Notwithstanding of this, He fills, moves, and invigorates all things by the virtue of the Spirit, and that according to the peculiar nature which each class of beings has received by the law of creation. But if the Lord has been pleased to assist us by the work and ministry of the ungodly in physics, dialectics, mathematics, and other similar sciences, let us avail ourselves of it, lest, by neglecting the gifts of God spontaneously offered to us, we be justly punished for our sloth. Lest any one, however, should imagine a man to be very happy merely because, with reference to the elements of this world, he has been endued with great talents for the investigation of truth, we ought to add that the whole power of intellect thus bestowed is, in the sight of God, fleeting and vain, whenever it is not based on a solid foundation of truth. 
Augustine, to whom we have observed, the master of sentences, and the schoolmen, are forced to subscribe, says most correctly that as the gratuitous gifts bestowed on man were withdrawn, so the natural gifts which remained were corrupted after the fall. Not that they can be polluted in themselves in so far as they proceed from God, but that they have ceased to be pure to polluted man, lest he should, by their means, obtain any praise. Section 17 The sum of the whole is this. From a general survey of the human race, it appears that one of the essential properties of our nature is reason, which distinguishes us from the lower animals, just as these, by means of sense, are distinguished from inanimate objects. For although some individuals are born without reason, that defect does not impair the general kindness of God, but rather serves to remind us that whatever we retain ought justly to be ascribed to the divine indulgence. Had God not so spared us, our revolt would have carried along with it the entire destruction of nature, and that some excel in acuteness, and some in judgment, while others have greater readiness in learning some peculiar art, God, by this variety, commends his favor toward us, lest any one should presume to arrogate to himself that which flows from his mere liberality. For whence is it that one is more excellent than another, but that in a common nature the grace of God is specially displayed in passing by many, and thus proclaiming that it is under obligation to none? We may add that each individual is brought under particular influences according to his calling. Many examples of this occur in the book of Judges, in which the Spirit of the Lord is said to have come upon those whom he called to govern his people. Judges 6.34 In short, in every distinguished act there is a special inspiration. Thus it is said of Saul that, quote, There went with him a band of men whose hearts the Lord had touched. Unquote. 1 Samuel 10.26 and when his inauguration to the kingdom is foretold, Samuel thus addresses him, quote, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with him, and shalt be turned into another man, unquote. 1 Samuel 10.6 This extends to the whole course of government, as it is afterwards said of David, quote, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, unquote. 1 Samuel 16.13 The same thing is elsewhere said with reference to particular movements, Nay, even in Homer, men are said to excel in genius, not only according as Jupiter has distributed to each, but according as he leads them day by day. Greek words, Omicron, Iota, Omicron, Nu, Epsilon, Pi, Eta, Mu, Alpha, Zeta, Alpha, Gamma, Eta, Sigma, Iota, Hoion, Ep, Imaz, Agesi. And certainly experience shows that when those who were most skillful and ingenious stand stupefied, that the minds of men are entirely under the control of God, who rules them every moment. Hence it is said that, quote, He poureth contempt upon princes, and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way, unquote. Psalm 107.40 Still, in this diversity, we can trace some remains of the divine image distinguishing the whole human race from other creatures. Section 18 we must now explain what the power of human reason is in regard to the kingdom of God and spiritual discernment, which consists chiefly of three things, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his paternal favor towards us, which constitutes our salvation, and the method of regulating our conduct in accordance with the divine law. With regard to the former two, but more properly the second, men otherwise the most ingenious are blinder than moles. 
I deny not, indeed, that in the writings of philosophers we meet occasionally with shrewd and apposite remarks on the nature of God, though they invariably savor somewhat of giddy imagination. As observed above, the Lord has bestowed on them some slight perception of his Godhead, that they might not plead ignorance as an excuse for their impiety, and has at times instigated them to deliver some truths, the confession of which should be their own condemnation. Still, though saying, they saw not. Their discernment was not such as to direct them to the truth, far less to enable them to attain it, but resembled that of the bewildered traveler, who sees the flash of lightning glance far and wide for a moment, and then vanish into the darkness of the night, before he can advance a single step. So far is such assistance from enabling him to find the right path? Besides, how many monstrous falsehoods intermingle with those minute particles of truth scattered up and down in their writings as if by chance? In short, not one of them even made the least approach to that assurance of the divine favor, without which the mind of man must ever remain a mere chaos of confusion. To the great truths, what God is in himself, and what he is in relation to us, human reason makes not the least approach. See Book 3, Chapter 2, Sections 14, 15, and 16. Section 19. But since we are intoxicated with a false opinion of our own discernment, and can scarcely be persuaded that in divine things it is altogether stupid and blind, I believe the best course will be to establish the fact, not by argument, but by scripture. Most admirable to this effect is the passage which I lately quoted from John, when he says, quote, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, unquote. John 1, 4 and 5. He intimates that the human soul is indeed irradiated with a beam of divine light, so that it is never left utterly devoid of some small flame or redder spark, though not such as to enable it to comprehend God. And why so? Because its acuteness is, in reference to the knowledge of God, mere blindness. When the Spirit describes men under the term darkness, he declares them void of all power of spiritual intelligence. For this reason, it is said that believers in embracing Christ are, quote, born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, unquote, John 1, 13. In other words, that the flesh has no capacity for such sublime wisdom as to apprehend God, and the things of God, unless illumined by his Spirit. In like manner, our Savior, when he was acknowledged by Peter, declared that it was by special revelation from the Father, Matthew 16:17. Section 20. If we were persuaded of a truth which ought to be beyond dispute, viz., that human nature possesses none of the gifts which the elect receive from their Heavenly Father through the spirit of regeneration, there would be no room here for hesitation. For thus speaks the congregation of the faithful by the mouth of the prophet, quote, With thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Unquote. Psalm 36, 9. To the same effect is the testimony of the Apostle Paul when he declares that, quote, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost, unquote. 1 Corinthians 12:3, And John the Baptist, on seeing the dullness of his disciples, exclaims, quote, A man can receive nothing unless it be given him from heaven, unquote. John 3:27. That the gift to which he here refers must be understood not of ordinary natural gifts, but of special illumination, appears from this that he was complaining how little his disciples had profited by all that he had said to them in commendation of Christ. Quote, I see, unquote, says he, quote, 
that my words are of no effect in imbuing the minds of men with divine things, unless the Lord enlightened their understandings by his Spirit. Unquote. Nay, Moses also, while upbraiding the people for their forgetfulness, at the same time observes that they could not become wise in the mysteries of God without his assistance. Quote, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, unto Pharaoh, and unto all his servants, and unto all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs, and these great miracles. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. Unquote. Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 and 4. Would the expression have been stronger, had he called us mere blocks, in regard to the contemplation of divine things? Hence the Lord, by the mouth of the prophet, promises to the Israelites as a singular favor, quote, I will give them an heart to know me, unquote. Jeremiah 24, 7, intimating that in spiritual things the human mind is wise only in so far as he enlightens it. This was also clearly confirmed by our Savior when he said, quote, No man can come to me, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Unquote. John 6.44 Nay, is not he himself the living image of his Father, in which the full brightness of his glory is manifested to us? Therefore, how far our faculty of knowing God extends could not be better shown than when it is declared that though his image is so plainly exhibited, we have not eyes to perceive it. What? Did not Christ descend into the world, that he might make the will of his Father manifest to men? And did he not faithfully perform the office? True, he did. But nothing is accomplished by his preaching, unless the inner teacher, the Spirit, open the way into our minds. Only those, therefore, come to him who have heard and learned of the Father. And in what is the method of this hearing and learning? It is when the Spirit, with a wondrous and special energy, forms the ear to hear and the mind to understand. Lest this should seem new, our Savior refers to the prophecy of Isaiah, which contains a promise of the renovation of the church. Quote, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Unquote. Isaiah 54.7 If the Lord here predicts some special blessing to his elect, it is plain that the teaching to which he refers is not that which is common to them with the ungodly and profane. It thus appears that none can enter the kingdom of God save those whose minds have been renewed by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. On this subject, the clearest exposition is given by Paul, who, when expressly handling it after condemning the whole wisdom of the world as foolishness and vanity, and thereby declaring man's utter destitution, thus concludes, quote, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned, unquote. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Whom does he mean by the, quote, natural man, unquote? The man who trusts to the light of nature. Such a man has no understanding in the spiritual mysteries of God. Why so? Is it because, through sloth, he neglects them? Nay, though he exert himself, it is of no avail. They are, quote, spiritually discerned, unquote. And what does this mean? That altogether hidden from human discernment, they are made known only by the revelation of the Spirit, so that they are accounted foolishness wherever the Spirit does not give light. The Apostle had previously declared that, quote, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, unquote. Nay, that the wisdom of the world is a kind of veil by which the mind is prevented from beholding God. 
1 Corinthians 2.9. What would we more? The Apostle declares that God hath, quote, made foolish the wisdom of this world, unquote, 1 Corinthians 1.20. And shall we attribute to it an acuteness capable of penetrating to God and the hidden mysteries of his kingdom? Far from us be such presumption. Section 21. What the Apostle here denies to man, he, in another place, ascribes to God alone, when he prays, quote, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, unquote, Ephesians 1.17. You now hear that all wisdom and revelation is the gift of God. What follows? Quote, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, unquote. Surely, if they require a new enlightening, they must in themselves be blind. The next words are, quote, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, unquote, Ephesians 1, 18. In other words, the minds of men have not capacity enough to know their calling. Let no prating Pelagian here allege that God obviates this rudeness or stupidity, when, by the doctrine of his word, he directs us to a path which we could not have found without a guide. David had the law, comprehending in it all the wisdom that could be desired, and yet, not contented with this, he prays, quote, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Unquote. Psalm 119.18 By this expression he certainly intimates that it is like sunrise to the earth when the word of God shines forth but that men do not derive much benefit from it until he himself, who is for this reason called the Father of Lights, James 1.17, either gives eyes or opens them, because whatever is not illuminated by his Spirit is holy darkness. The apostles had been duly and amply instructed by the best of teachers. Still, as they wanted the Spirit of Truth to complete their education in the very doctrine which they had previously heard, they were ordered to wait for him, John 14.26 If we confess that what we ask of God is lacking to us, and he by the very thing promised intimates our want, no man can hesitate to acknowledge that he is able to understand the mysteries of God only in so far as illuminated by his grace. He who ascribes to himself more understanding than this is the blinder for not acknowledging his blindness. Section 22 it remains to consider the third branch of the knowledge of spiritual things, viz., the method of properly regulating the conduct. This is correctly termed the knowledge of the works of righteousness, a branch in which the human mind seems to have somewhat more discernment than in the former two, since an apostle declares, quote, When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meantime accusing or else excusing one another. Unquote. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. If the Gentiles had the righteousness of the law naturally engraven on their minds, we certainly cannot say that they are altogether blind as to the rule of life. Nothing indeed is more common than for man to be sufficiently instructed in a right course of conduct by natural law, of which the Apostle here speaks. Let us consider, however, for what end this knowledge of the law was given to men. For from this it will forthwith appear how far it can conduct them in the way of reason and truth. This is even plain from the words of Paul, if we attend to their arrangement. He had said a little before that those who had sinned in the law will be judged by the law, and those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. 
as it might seem unaccountable that the Gentiles should perish without any previous judgment, he immediately subjoins that conscience served them instead of the law, and was therefore sufficient for their righteous condemnation. The end of the natural law, therefore, is to render man inexcusable, and maybe not improperly defined, the judgment of conscience distinguishing sufficiently between just and unjust, and by convicting men on their own testimony depriving them of all pretext for ignorance. So indulgent is man toward himself that, while doing evil, he always endeavors as much as he can to suppress the idea of sin. It was this, apparently, which induced Plato to suppose that sins were committed only through ignorance. There might be some ground for this, if hypocrisy were so successful in hiding vice as to keep the conscience clear in the sight of God. But since the sinner, when trying to evade the judgment of good and evil implanted in him, is ever and anon dragged forward, and not permitted to wink so effectually as not to be compelled at times, whether he will or not to open his eyes, it is false to say that he sins only through ignorance. Section 23. Themistius is more accurate in teaching that the intellect is very seldom mistaken in the general definition or essence of the matter, but that deception begins as it advances farther, namely, when it descends to particulars. That homicide, putting the case in the abstract, is an evil no man will deny, and yet one who is conspiring the death of his enemy deliberates on it as if the thing was good. The adulterer will condemn the adultery in the abstract, and yet flatter himself while privately committing it. The ignorance lies here, that man, when it comes to the particular, forgets the rule which he had laid down in the general case. Augustine treats most admirably on this subject in his exposition of the first verse of the 57th Psalm. The doctrine of Themistius, however, does not always hold true, for the turpitude of the crime sometimes presses so on the conscience that the sinner does not impose upon himself by false semblance of good, but rushes into sin knowingly and willingly. Hence the expression, I see the better course and approve it. I follow the worse. For this reason, Aristotle seems to me to have made a very shrewd distinction between incontinence and intemperance. Where incontinence, Greek word alpha, xi, zeta, alpha, sigma, iota, alpha, axasia, reigns, he says that through the passion, Greek word pi, alpha, theta, omicron, sigma, pathos, particular knowledge is suppressed so that the individual sees not in his own misdeed the evil which he sees generally in similar cases. But when the passion is over, repentance immediately succeeds. Intemperance, Greek word, alpha, xi, omicron, lambda, alpha, sigma, iota, alpha, axolatia, again is not extinguished or diminished by a sense of sin, but, on the contrary, persists in the evil choice which it has once made. Section 24. Moreover, when you hear of an universal judgment in man distinguishing between good and evil, you must not suppose that this judgment is, in every respect, sound and entire. For if the hearts of men are imbued with a sense of justice and injustice, in order that they may have no pretext to allege ignorance, it is by no means necessary for this purpose that they should discern the truth in particular cases. It is even more than sufficient if they understand so far as to be unable to practice evasion without being convicted by their own conscience, and beginning even now to tremble at the judgment seat of God. Indeed, if we would test our reason by the divine law, which is a perfect standard of righteousness, we should find how blind it is in many respects. It certainly attains not to the principal heads of the first table, 
such as trust in God, the ascription to him of all praise in virtue and righteousness, the invocation of his name, and the true observation of his day of rest. Did ever any soul, under the guidance of natural sense, imagine that these and the like constitute the legitimate worship of God? When profane men would worship God, how often soever they may be drawn off from their vain trifling, they constantly relapse into it. They admit, indeed, that sacrifices are not pleasing to God, unless accompanied with sincerity of mind, and by this they testify that they have some conception of spiritual worship, though they immediately pervert it by false devices. For it is impossible to persuade them that everything which the law enjoins on the subject is true. Shall I then extol the discernment of a mind which can neither acquire wisdom by itself nor listen to advice? As to the precepts of the second table, there is considerably more knowledge of them, inasmuch as they are more closely connected with the preservation of civil society. Even here, however, there is something defective. Every man of understanding deems it most absurd to submit to unjust and tyrannical domination, provided it can by any means be thrown off, and there is but one opinion among men, that it is the part of an abject and servile mind to bear it patiently, the part of an honorable and high-spirited mind to rise up against it. Indeed, the revenge of injuries is not regarded by philosophers as a vice. But the Lord, condemning this too lofty spirit, prescribes to his people that patience which mankind deem infamous. In regard to the general observance of the law, concupiscence altogether escapes our animadversion. For the natural man cannot bear to recognize diseases in his lusts. The light of nature is stifled sooner than take the first step into this profound abyss. For when philosophers class immoderate movements of the mind among vices, they mean those which break forth and manifest themselves in grosser forms, depraved desires in which the mind can quietly indulge, they regard as nothing. See later in chapter 8, section 49. Section 25. As we have above animadverted on Plato's error in ascribing all sins to ignorance, so we must repudiate the opinion of those who hold that all sins proceed from preconceived pravity and malice. We know too well from experience how often we fall, even when our intention is good. Our reason is exposed to so many forms of delusion, is liable to so many errors, stumbles on so many obstacles, is entangled by so many snares, that it is ever wandering from the right direction. Of how little value it is in the sight of God in regard to all the parts of life Paul shows, when he says that we are not, quote, sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, unquote, 2 Corinthians 3.5. He is not speaking of the will or affection. He denies us the power of thinking aright how anything can be duly performed. Is it indeed true that all thought, intelligence, discernment, and industry are so defective that in the sight of the Lord we cannot think or aim at anything that is right? To us, who can scarcely bear to part with acuteness of intellect in our estimation and most precious endowment, it seems hard to admit this, whereas it is regarded as most just by the Holy Spirit, who, quote, knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity, unquote. Psalm 94, 11 and distinctly declares that, quote, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, unquote, Genesis 6, 5, and 8, 21.
If everything which our mind conceives, meditates, plans, and resolves is always evil, how can it ever think of doing what is pleasing to God, to whom righteousness and holiness alone are acceptable? It is thus plain that our mind, in what direction soever it turns, is miserably exposed to vanity. David was conscious of its weakness when he prayed, quote, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law, unquote. Psalm 119, verse 34. By desiring to obtain a new understanding, he intimates that his own was by no means sufficient. This he does not once only, but in one psalm repeats the same prayer almost ten times, the repetition intimating how strong the necessity which urged him to pray. What he thus asked for himself alone, Paul prays for the churches in general. Quote, for this cause, unquote, says he, quote, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, unquote, etc. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. Whenever he represents this as a blessing from God, we should remember that he at the same time testifies that it is not in the power of man. Accordingly, Augustine, in speaking of this inability of human reason to understand the things of God, says that he deems the grace of illumination not less necessary to the mind than the light of the sun to the eye. And not content with this, he modifies his expression, adding that we open our eyes to behold the light, whereas the mental eye remains shut until it is opened by the Lord. Nor does Scripture say that our minds are illuminated by a single day, so as afterwards to see of themselves. The passage, which I lately quoted from the Apostle Paul, refers to continual progress and increase. David, too, expresses this distinctly in these words, quote, With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Unquote. Psalm 119.10 Though he had been regenerated, and so had made no ordinary progress in true piety, he confesses that he stood in need of direction every moment, in order that he might not decline from the knowledge with which he had been endued. Hence he elsewhere prays for a renewal of a right spirit, which he had lost by his sin. Psalm 51.12 For that which God gave at first, while temporarily withdrawn, it is equally his providence to restore. Section 26 we must now examine the will on which the question of freedom principally turns, the power of choice belonging to it, rather than the intellect, as we have already seen, see above section 4. And at the outset, to guard against its being thought that the doctrine taught by philosophers and generally received, viz., that all things by natural instinct have a desire of good, is any proof of the rectitude of the human will. Let us observe that the power of free will is not to be considered in any of those desires which proceed more from instinct than mental deliberation. Even the schoolmen admit that there is no act of free will unless when reason looks at opposites. By this they mean that the things desired must be such as may be made the object of choice, and that to pave the way for choice, deliberation must proceed. And, undoubtedly, if you attend to what this natural desire of good in man is, you will find that it is common to him with the brutes. They, too, desire what is good, and when any semblance of good capable of moving the sense appears, they follow after it. Here, however, man does not, in accordance with the excellence of his immortal nature, rationally choose and studiously pursue what is truly for his good. He does not admit reason to his counsel, nor exert his intellect. But without reason, without counsel, 
follows the bent of his nature like the lower animals. The question of freedom, therefore, has nothing to do with the fact of man's being led by natural instinct to desire good. The question is, does man, after determining by right reason what is good, choose what he thus knows and pursue what he thus chooses? Lest any doubt should be entertained as to this, we must attend to the double misnomer, for this appetite is not properly a movement of the will, but natural inclination, and this good is not one of virtue or righteousness, but of condition, these, that the individual may feel comfortable. In fine, how much soever man may desire to obtain what is good, he does not follow it. There is no man who would not be pleased with eternal blessedness, and yet, without the impulse of the spirit, no man aspires to it. Since then, the natural desire of happiness in man no more proves the freedom of the will than the tendency in metals and stones to attain the perfection of their nature. Let us consider, in other respects, whether the will is so utterly vitiated and corrupted in every part as to produce nothing but evil, or whether it retains some portion uninjured and productive of good desires. Section 27. Those who ascribe our willing effectually to the primary grace of God, see above, section 6, seem conversely to insinuate that the soul has in itself a power of aspiring to good, though a power too feeble to rise to solid affection or active endeavor. There is no doubt that this opinion, adopted from origin and certain of the ancient fathers, has been generally embraced by the schoolmen, who are wont to apply to man in his natural state. At the following description of the apostle, quote, For that which I do I allow not, for what I would that do I not, but what I hate that I do, unquote. Quote, To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not, unquote. Romans 7, 15 and 18. But in this way the whole scope of Paul's discourse is inverted. He is speaking of the Christian struggle, touched on more briefly in the epistle to the Galatians, which believers constantly experience from the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. But the spirit is not from nature, but from regeneration. That the apostle is speaking of the regenerate is apparent from this, that after saying, quote, in me dwells no good thing, unquote, he immediately adds the explanation, quote, in my flesh, unquote. Accordingly, he declares, quote, It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Unquote. What is the meaning of the correction, quote, in me, that is, in my flesh? Unquote. It is just as if he had spoken in this way. No good thing dwells in me, of myself, for in my flesh nothing good can be found. Hence follows the species of excuse. It is not I myself that do evil, but sin that dwelleth in me. This applies to none but the regenerate who, with the leading powers of the soul, tend towards what is good. The whole is made plain by the conclusion, quote, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, unquote. Romans 7, verses 22 and 23. Who has this struggle in himself, save those who, regenerated by the Spirit of God, bear about with them the remains of the flesh? Accordingly, Augustine, who had at one time thought that the discourse related to the natural man, afterwards retracted his exposition as unsound and inconsistent. And indeed, if we admit that men, without grace, have any motions to good, however feeble, what answer shall we give to the apostle who declares that, quote, we are incapable of thinking a good thought, unquote, 2 Corinthians 3.5. What answer shall we give to the Lord who declares by Moses that, quote, 
every imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. Unquote. Genesis 8.21 Since the blunder has thus arisen from an erroneous view of a single passage, it seems unnecessary to dwell upon it. Let us rather give due weight to our Savior's words, quote, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, unquote. John 8.34 We are all sinners by nature, therefore we are held under the yoke of sin. But if the whole man is subject to the dominion of sin, surely the will, which is its principal seat, must be bound with the closest chains. And indeed, if divine grace were preceded by any will of ours, Paul could not have said that, quote, it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do. Unquote. Philippians 2.13 Away then with all the absurd trifling which many have indulged in with regard to preparation. Although believers sometimes ask to have their heart trained to the obedience of the divine law, as David does in several passages, Psalm 51.12, it is to be observed that even this longing in prayer is from God. This is apparent from the language used, when he prays, quote, Create in me a clean heart, unquote. he certainly does not attribute the beginning of the creation to himself. Let us therefore rather adopt the sentiment of Augustine, quote, God will prevent you in all things, but you do sometimes prevent his anger. How? Confess that you have all these things from God, that all the good you have is from him, all the evil from yourself. Unquote. Shortly after he says, quote, Of our own we have nothing but sin. Unquote. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, 
Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.